My guest today is a brilliant theologian, author, podcaster, social worker, and a contributor on Pathios. His books include All Set Free, From the Blood of Abel, Heretic. He is the co-author of the multi-volume Bonfire Sessions booklets with Mike Machuga. I'm looking forward to talking to him about those today. Uh, he is one of four co-hosts of the insanely popular The Heretic Happy Hour podcast, and also has a solo podcast on the side called Apostates Anonymous that I look forward to exploring with him today as well. He was featured on the Messy Spirituality episode five very early on, and I'm thrilled to welcome him back for a very messy conversation today. Welcome back, Matthew J. DiStefano. Yeah, thanks, man. Um, Let me just clarify for the people who aren't able to see the video. You put brilliant in air quotes. (laughs) I did not. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I did. I added that caveat. That is absolutely the word that I think of every time I think of you. Well, thank Uh, you. Uh, My detractors on Pathios come up with different words. Um, So (laughs) I appreciate that. Yes, yes. And we might hear from some of them as a result of this interview. So I, I look forward to hearing their words about you. But I, yeah, if you don't mind me pulling up a quote, I've got a good one for you. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> oh, no, no, I don't want to kick off with that. <laughs> we got to ease people into this. Come on, man. Okay. Well, man, I'm excited to talk to you again. I got a chance to talk to you for your podcast, Apostates Anonymous, last week. And I'm not used to getting this much time with this level of brilliance. So I'm oh, excited. Goodness. Just stop it. Stop it. You're going to make my ego inflate. <laughs> well, you know, then you could be a preacher in the Bible belt and it'll all be good. Oh God. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't last a minute, dude. <laughs> no, one F bomb in and they'd fire you. But Yeah, for sure. All right. So last time you were here, we actually didn't talk about you very much. We talked more, we kind of explored Girardian uh, doctrinal thought, but uh, today I want to hear more about you. So, would you tell us some of your spiritual backstory? Um, I very rudely started interrupt uh, interviewing you when you were trying to interview me, and uh, we, you kind of started me down the road of your upbringing and kind of the doctrinal family that you came from uh, on your podcast, Apostates Anonymous, when you were trying to interview me. So, uh, I, today I get to actually interview you. So, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I want to hear more of your story. Were you raised in an atmosphere of faith? I was, yeah. And um, I just love that you started interviewing me. The only other person who's done that is another, um, well, he's a current pastor, but um, I don't know, maybe it's a pastor thing. Uh, but I, I, don't, I think it's funny. Um, yes, I We're was We're master raised... deflectors. Yeah, there you go. Is that part of the job description? <laughs> um, I, I was raised in the faith. I was... Um, it was a non-denominational sort of um, Christian Missionary Alliance. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, Simpson Bible College there in Reading. Um, kind of big all over the United States. I think they um, kind of a conglomerate of literalist, fundamentalist, um, left behind type evangelical, uh, eternal torment, Bible-believing Christian. Um, a very stereotypical white evangelical conservative background. And um, somehow that led to the person that is sitting in front of you, (laughs) which is none of those things, um, through a long, arduous, windy, perpetually questioning existential crisis of faith in my 20s. I'm I'm here today, still alive and uh, 
I, I'm doing better than I than I was when I was in that mold. But as these things, you know, when you when you're in that in that world and you um, you're a questioner, you just don't last. You know, like answers that you have don't stand up. They don't stand up to scrutiny. You test things and they just, you know, I mean, you could ask anything. Why is God so violent in the Bible? Why was slavery okay? And all these answers that you're given, eh, they don't satisfy. So, right. you know, here I am, self-described as a heretic and now apostate, whatever the hell you want to call me. I mean, it, it, you know, I, it is what it is. So how would you have described God back then? Um, well, I would have said things like God is like Jesus. I would have said those things, but I, I didn't, um, really, I don't think had a very good view of, of Jesus, but, um, God was, um, kind of like the biggest thing in the, in the universe. So it was uh, a deism is that I think deism, um, God is a deity. God is, God is the creator um god is the sustainer of things but god also hates sin god also um has to deal with sin so there is this balance um i wouldn't have said this but now i'd say it was like a two-faced god you have like the loving sort of forgiving merciful compassionate that side that jesus kind of represents but then you have the if you don't do this you get this side you get the authoritative, um, testosterone-driven, um, um, retributive, punitive God who will make sure that sin is punished. And I don't know if I would have said all those things, but that is kind of, that's the God I, I believed in. And I'm sure you're familiar with that God being in the Bible Belt or formerly in the Bible Belt. Right, yeah. Well, we're we're in the panhandle of Florida, so it's still basically Bible Belt, but... right. Uh, yeah, it's the same thing. Really, we the part of Florida we live in is just like living in Alabama. Sure. So we're we're dealing with those same things. Now, I cannot imagine you in that environment long term not asking questions. Did they know what to do with your questions back then? No, no, they didn't. Um I I tried to ask them tactfully. I kind of um, came into my own in my snarkiness and sarcasm, but it's always been there. And I've always been very pointed and direct. And so when I asked things like, hey, are we sure God was cool with slavery in the Hebrew Bible? Um, they didn't, they had answers for those. But when I kept pressing and kept pressing and saying that that answer doesn't satisfy, it doesn't matter how we treat our slaves. We shouldn't have slaves, you know? Um, <laughs> so, and that's just one example. People didn't know what to do with that. It's kind of like, um, Kafka's metamorphosis the main character turns into an insect and eventually his family doesn't know what to do with them and they kind of like turn away from from the character and and that's kind of how it was for me like when you when you walk away from that faith people don't know what to do with that I think they're concerned for your soul truly because they say they believe in hell they say they believe in all this I'm not quite sure but they they do um and, and, and when you when you move away from that, the one thing that kept you guys together, friends, family, church, whatever, was that shared belief, that shared tribe. Um, Sunday, I, I did worship a lot, Sunday, Wednesday, Bible studies, all this kind of stuff. When you no longer 
believe that when you're questioning it intensely, kind of like people don't know what to do. Right. They're kind of stuck. They, they, they probably have some of those same questions, but they're not willing to step off into that. I'm really going to ask this. It's kind of more like I better just sweep this crap under the rug and not deal with it. Cause it, it can, it can start the, uh, the snowball rolling until you get to an avalanche. Right. Yeah. Was there a point of no return for you? Was there like a line that you just couldn't cross something you were so uncomfortable with that you just thought to yourself, I can't do this anymore. It was the, um, it was the divine violence for me, for some reason, like some people, some people doesn't bug them. It doesn't bug them that God, you know, killed a bunch of people in the Bible, um, or was alleged to, right. They believed that, um, it, it, for me, it just, I couldn't, I couldn't square the fact that like humans commit horrible, horrible atrocities, like on the daily war, genocide, all this kind of stuff and continue to this day. It didn't make sense to me. We didn't need a God like that. We're capable of that on our own. So it was like, I don't, if that's God, I don't believe that that God exists. Or if he does, that God is not worthy of my worship because I don't worship those things in humanity. I don't worship um, state sponsored executions. I don't worship those things. How can I then worship those things in God, if that's, if that's a part of God. And so then I, you know, essentially became an atheist because I knew of no other God. How do you relate to the Bible today? Practically? Yeah. Like on the day to day? I don't. <laughs> okay. Well, I, hey, mean, I mean, what do you believe about the Bible? I guess is what I'm asking. Cause uh, well, that kind yeah. of background usually brings some baggage that takes quite a while to unload. Yeah, I actually appreciate the Bible and respect the Bible. I mean, you mentioned the, the time I came on here, we talked about Gerard and um, his anthropological insights and, and how to read mythology. Um, so I, I wore my cave painting shirt today for your Patreon supporters. Um, Very nice. So, I mean, I, 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 I think that there are truths in the Bible. I think there's a um, divine inspiration in the Bible as crazy as this might sound to people who are appalled by the violence in the Bible, I think that there is a pull away from mythologizing our violence and, and projecting that on the, onto the divine. And I think uh, Jesus in his life and mission and the resurrection is kind of the talos of that story. Um, moving us from a, a, an assumption about God that demands blood, that demands sacrifice, that demands all these sort of things and pulls us incrementally, um, ebbing and flowing, of course, because we're humans, we're messy, uh, <laughs> to, the, to the point of Jesus where we get a, a view of God that is nonviolent. And so I respect the Bible. I respect the hell out of the Bible. Um, pardon the pun. Yeah. Um, and and, and I, I just don't like... I, I've read it a lot. I've, I've studied it a lot over the past five years, especially like I don't, I don't read it. I don't sit down and read my Bible any, any longer. I, I, I kind of treat it like any other ancient thing, any ancient document, but I think there are more truths in the Bible than, than there are not truths. I'm just interested in reading other things right now. What do you, how do you feel about Jesus today? How do I feel about it? We're cool. <laughs> 
I think Jesus is he, great. He's a good guy. He's a good guy. No, I will go further than that. Uh, um, I, I'm, Let me rephrase. How do you relate to Jesus? Today? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, you know, it's like any relationship. It has, no. Um, <laughs> hey, truer words may never have been spoken. I, that's true. Um, I, I believe that I'm really interested in this idea of the bodhisattva in, in, in Buddhism that the bodhisattva you're gonna have to break that down i've never heard of that yeah, before yeah i'm gonna don't worry about it okay, mate. Good, i got sir. you i got you um, appreciate you my understanding is of the bodhisattva is the one who achieves enlightenment not for his or her own benefit or the sake of his or own benefit at all but for the sake of all sentient beings so in that way so there's a way of being in the world and it's about compassion. It's other oriented. It's kind of like uh, kenosis in, in, in Christian theology, like the outpouring of your own nature for, for the sake of, of those uh, around you. Um, now, there, of course, are cultural contexts with the Bodhisattva and there's cultural contexts with Jesus in relating to first century occupied, you know, uh, you know uh, um, Israel in, in occupied Rome. And, and there's all that. But I think the way of Jesus and the way of Buddha and the Bodhisattva transcends culture, even though it's a part of it. And I just see Jesus as a truly enlightened, fully um, leaned into his Christ nature. I don't think that Jesus is the only Christ. I think we are all little Christs, just like the Buddha is not the only the only one who has developed his Buddhahood, maybe just the first, maybe, maybe Jesus was the first fully enlightened, fully awakened Christ. But I see like Richard Rohr would talk about that the entire cosmos is a part of the Christ and we are included in that. So I'm really interested in the practicality of Jesus and how I as a human relate to the human Jesus and I'll let the divine metaphysical stuff work itself out. That's really interesting to me. How traumatic was, I, I hate the term deconstruction, how, your spiritual evolution. How traumatic was that for you? Uh, very traumatic. Um, I lost relationships with family, especially my wife's family. My wife's family has, you know, um, he's now deceased, but a, a grandfather who was a pastor forever, very involved in the uh, CMA, uh, CMA church. Um, I did a lot of, as you know, I did a lot of, I do a lot of my processing online. Mm -hmm. I share a lot. I write a lot. People read stuff. They emailed it to each other. They emailed it to pastors. I even had people send emails to the Billy Graham Foundation based on what I was saying and getting <laughs> responses back from them. I was like, Christ almighty, help me. Um, so it was very traumatic. Um, it's very nice that my wife and I have kind of done it together and we've, we're not in the same place. We, um, we're in similar places, sure. We understand one another but our relationship is not based on shared beliefs in that way. Um, so we, we've learned and grown together by 
standing on our own two feet. And in doing that, we've been able to actually have vulnerable, compassionate relationship rather than what um, a psychologist, David Schnarch would call emotional fusion, where you have to believe the same things. It's, it's a, it's like a facade of what a true relationship would be. It's not based on two individuals who are able to, you know, stand on their own two feet coming together. It's about like fusing ideologically with one another. And that is set up for failure. And a lot of people who deconstruct at different times, maybe you have one who is like walking away from the faith and one spouse that is like hardcore fundamentalist. And I've, I've heard stories of this and it just ends up being horrible. Um, that's been my experience with family, but luckily not with my spouse. Well, that's good. I'm grateful for that for you. Totally. Uh, question. And I don't want to be too personal. So just, you know, tell me, oh, ask away, on. man. No, I I'm, I'm an open book, mate. How, how do you raise your daughter uh, when it comes to faith that is different than the way you were raised? Um, well, truth be told, you know, I mean, I did have a tumultuous upbringing. My dad left when I was five and I'm estranged. My mom got remarried to my stepdad, who's great. They had a rocky relationship get the, from the get-go, but then they, you know, they worked it out. Um, and, but they were never as fundamentalist as our churches were. My dad was, you know, my stepdad was a, an old hippie from the 60s. Uh, they were both Catholic and then became Protestant. So they had gone through some sort of faith journey of their own. Um, but for some reason, we attended really fundamentalist churches. I don't understand that one still. But, um, but so they, they, like, they raised me as, as best as they could. And so what I'll say is not to, like, shame them or say they did it wrong. I just feel like, as generations go, we kind of improve on what we've been given. So I'd hope my daughter, if she has kids, improves on the mistakes that my wife and I have made. Um, we don't hammer home any sort of dogmatism, any ideological things. Um, my daughter has asked what I mean by God. And I say, well, I don't really know how to explain it other than you do know what love is. You do know how it feels. You know when something is loving. And so when you experience that, that is the closest thing that we can get to saying what God is like. So when you love your friends, when you love your family, when other people show love to you, that is what God is like in the, in the simplest, in the simplest way. Hmm. And I think what, you know, Rob Bell said something that resonated with me. He said something to the effect, I think it was on Pete Holmes's podcast when his kids turn 18, that he wants them to have as little baggage as possible. He wants them to have to unlearn as little as possible. So my daughter's 10. I don't see the point in teaching atonement theory or um, theory of inspiration of scripture or what uh, Trinitarian theology. Just keep it simple, stupid. Um, great advice. Offends me every time. Um, to quote the office, um, keep it as simple as possible with, with, with children. They get it. There's there, you know, Jesus says, you know, be like children, not, not childish, but childlike have wonder and awe. And, you know, they will get it without you having to muddy up the waters. Mm. So, you know, we, we try to discipline with compassion. We don't hit, we don't take away her stuff. We use reason and logic. I say, 
if you have to steal their stuff or, you know, like steal their toys or hit them, you know, it, what's my phrase? I, I had a good one. I wrote it down. Oh, if they're old enough to understand, to reason through those things, then, then do that. If they're too young to reason through these things, then they're not going to understand stealing their stuff or spanking them or anything like that. So use compassion, use reason, use relationship first. And I think, I think the, uh, theological questions will work themselves out. I'm glad that you brought up the discipline aspect because when we were talking on your podcast last week, we talked about our shared belief that spanking is child abuse. Um, I got into a conversation uh, around that subject on Facebook this week. And, and even the folks who agree, folks who believe that God is love, believe that God is not coercive and uh, vindictive, that he's not, he or she is not punishing us with anger and malice and burning people for all eternity. They don't know what the alternative is because spanking is the only form of discipline most of us have ever witnessed. Now you mentioned grounding and taking away their stuff and stuff like that. What are the alternatives that do work? I know you kind of just unpacked a little bit about that, but just from a very practical perspective, what can someone do that wants to get away from spanking and grounding and those kind of things um well i'm glad you mentioned it because a lot of things it's important to understand the practicalities of things and not that we're not sitting on an ivory tower and and theorizing only um but my my first thing i'll answer your question in a second is to get people to understand that we would call it abuse if we were taking care of an elderly man or woman and we would never spank them let's say someone with dementia, someone with Alzheimer's, someone who's not going to get it the same way a toddler doesn't get it at first, right? Um, We would call that elder abuse and rightfully so. Uh, When I worked in group homes, we could not hit kids. Um, So I I, I fail to understand why it's okay to hit our children when they're doing something we don't want them to do. And I understand it gets people to to change behaviors in the moment, but the science is showing that it actually causes trauma in the same way abuse does. And I will say abuse of course is on a spectrum. Spanking your children is not the same as sexual abuse or anything like that, but it's a spectrum. And and I don't think you want to be on that spectrum. Mm -hmm. Now, some alternatives is probably the same alternatives you would use if you had employees who were not doing the things they should be doing in a job situation. I understand adults are different than children. However, you just have to be creative and more patient. You have to use relationships. You are smarter than your children. You have more life experiences. I guarantee you can be creative. There are books on this. Um, Cindy Wang Brandt has a great book called Parenting Forward. uh, If I could plug that. Um, there, there are ways to be creative. I, you know, my daughter, I'd like to say my daughter, you know, has not pushed us to where we have to consider any of that, but in the same breath, I I probably have to pat ourselves on the back and say, she probably doesn't because we've reasoned with her from even at a younger age. You know, if she's, I guess you'd have to give me an example of, of when you would spank a kid. Um, I, I just, you know, if they're not turning off their device or if they're throwing their food on the ground. Um, 
I, I'm not sure how spanking would change the behavior. Maybe they throw all their food on the ground and they, and maybe they're sitting in a high chair and they throw all their food on the ground and you want to swat the rear end. Maybe a better way would be let them throw their food on the ground. You'll clean it later. Things do clean. And then when they're hungry, they can, they can start to make the connection. If I throw my food on the ground, I don't eat it. And then I'm hungry. Mm. And, and you can start to have those conversations. They don't need to be, they can be simple. Um, if they're younger, two, three, four years old, but you can get a three, four, five-year-old to understand cause and effect. Um, there's this thing called natural consequences. Um, spanking doesn't have to be one of them. You can right. let, you can let things, and as long as things are safe, you can let things play out a little bit and not have to be reactionary. Yeah. You can let a kid kind of get themselves into a bit of a pickle as long as it's safe, as long as they're not going to be harmed. Right. I, I think one of the questions that I get from folks is, is what do you do when you know your child isn't safe when they're old enough to drive and go places? Obviously you're not going to spank a teenager. I mean, most people aren't spanking teenagers old enough to drive. Um, but I, I hear from parents that deal with some really terrifying situations, you know, their teenage daughter or son gets involved in a relationship that is crossing all kinds of lines and they're in, you know, pictures and videos and all kinds of things like that. I mean, I think, does it just come back to having a, a trusting relationship between the parent and the child? I think it all comes down to trust and relationship. You know, it's, it's one of those things like, like if they're older and they're getting into sexual things at, at a, at an age or in a, in, a, in a manner that's not healthy, then have the conversations of what healthy sexuality looks like. I think we, um, you know, my daughter's 10, so she's a little young for that. Sure. Although, although not by much. Um, people in the Bible got married at 12, probably, or 13. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, okay, but when we do have that conversation, are you going to simply use thou shalt not, which doesn't work, it simply doesn't. Um, or are you going to help them understand what a healthy sexual life looks like so that they don't want to be promiscuous and they don't want to get in situations that they're going to regret later? Right. You know, in the purity culture, it was all about don't do this. It's going to be great when you get married and all don't, 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 don't. What happens when they do? Because they're going to. Right. Well, they don't understand, we didn't understand, frankly, those of us who lived in that culture, Mm -hmm. didn't understand what a healthy sexuality looked like. And we had to figure it out through trial and error and having to undo a lot of the stuff that we learned. So I'm all for teaching a more positive, healthy sexuality rather than simply don't do this. Right. Once you already get to the spot where they're doing it, it's, it's going to be harder to go back and, and try to build that trust and relationship. So build it early. Um, simply telling your teenage daughter or son, hey, don't have sex with your girlfriend. I mean, it's just not going to work. It'd be nice if it was that easy. You yeah. know, show up to the door with a shotgun. <laughs> All right. Not- the, other, the other question that I get from parents is, you know, well, doesn't the Bible say... Um, you know, if you spare the rod, you hate your child. And isn't that a endorsement of corporal punishment? Well, I mean, my goodness, even that's a, a metaphor, right? I mean, unless you're hitting your kid with an actual rod. So if you, Ooh, if you're, and I if hope you're, you're not, God, 
I'll hit you with the broad. <laughs> Even that's a metaphor, right? It's kind of a, because people are then spanking with their hand and they're using that. Well, I would say one, I don't think the Bible gets everything right. Hmm. Two, I'm fine with that metaphor as long as we say, okay, what's the point? What's the truth behind that? There could be some truth behind that. If you spoil your children, I mean, your, your children will be spoiled brats if you do not discipline them. That's the truth I get out of it. And I have experience of success without using physical violence against them. So why not do that? Why not do that? Hmm. So good. why not? Let, let's take it further than they want to take it because right. they're even metaphor making it a metaphor. Um, and again, you should be in jail if you're hitting your kids with a rod. Yeah. Well, and, and I always want to just say, that's not what the Bible's for. Exactly. We, we love to take little things like that and turn them into this whole big thing. Right. But even if you have a deep appreciation of scripture, that's not what it's for. And, and like you're saying, it's a metaphor. It's talking about just the idea of discipline. It's not saying hit your kid or your animal with, with a literal right. rod as a way of, of discipline. Right. And why, why can we hit our children but not hit other adults? If we hit other adults, it's battery. Yeah. And rightfully so. But if we hit children in the name of discipline, it's fine. I, I fail to understand that. I, I really do. I, 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 I have tried to understand it and I can't, I can't understand how we're, uh, we're, we understand that it's bad to hit an elderly person in our care, but then some people would then not be able to apply that same logic to children, little people. Right. Who are the, some of the most defenseless people among us? Exactly. The most vulnerable, physically weak people. Yeah. And, and like you said on your podcast, when we discussed this last week, we are not intending any shame to no. anybody who has spanked their kids, but you can know better now and do better. Exactly. now. Exactly. The point is not to shame anyone. Shame does not work. Right. This is not to shame anyone. It's to understand there's this, there's this concept in Christianity that I love, and we've botched it, but I love the original concept. It's changing your mind. The Greek word is metanoia. We translate it to repent. This is a point of emphasis to be made. This is something we can repent of. Mm. We learn. We grow. We look at the data. We listen to psychologists in the Association of Pediatrics, and they say, do not spank your kids. Oh, Okay, why? Because it leads to more violence, more propensity toward violence. It leads to trauma. So what do we do about that? Well, it's not to shame anyone. It's to change your mind. I've had to change my mind on a lot of things. You have too. Yep. And anyone who's taking faith seriously or the Christian faith specifically seriously, you do a lot of mind changing and that's how you know you're growing. But kind of takes a leap of faith to do that because we don't like to be wrong. Right. But we have, we have to realize that, you know, I, the evangelicals always throw this my way, you know, repent brother, uh, whether it's LGBT or whatever, repent. I did. I have. That's why I've changed so much. Yeah. And healthy things grow, growing things change, right? That that's the go. way it's supposed to work. It's the way it's supposed to work. Right. 
you uh, going back to your own spiritual evolution, your own journey, who were your influences? Were there friends, musicians, writers, theologians that helped you through that process? Who were they and what did they contribute to your journey? Well, that's a great question. Um, I'm an eclectic person, as you might know. Um, I'm a musician, a writer, uh, kind of all over the map in terms of my interests. So there were, there were scholars People like Rene Girard, um, Thomas Talbot, the philosopher, Robin Perry early on, mm. um, you know, people like that. And then, you know, the scholarship world. But then there were like bands like Me Without You, um, Sleeping at Last, hip hop artists like Chance the Rapper, um, people all over the map. And then there was, uh, there was a guy who became my best friend, uh, Mike Machuga, who I've written multiple books with, did a podcast with. Uh, it's now on hiatus. He, uh, he got diagnosed with colon cancer this year. Oh, no. So, yeah, it's been kind of... Tw if 2020 couldn't be uh, worse, uh, it was worse for him. Um, so he's had to uh, you know, go through chemo and surgery, and it looks like everything's getting better. Um, so we may re re up the podcast again. We're not, we're not exactly sure, but, um, he came along in my spiritual journey and was way into Eastern philosophy and Eastern religion and Zen Buddhism and has been like, like the, 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 the Sam to my Frodo, if, if, <laughs> if I can use a Tolkien reference, um, we, we spent like three hours a week on a Wednesday night around a, around a campfire, just hanging out, talking, philosophizing, having some good whiskey and, um, for like four years. Wow. And it's been like, you know, it's been a godsend to have someone like that who is totally safe to tell any, anything to, you know, other than your spouse, you know what I mean? Like it's a right. different relationship, you know, it it's, and, and it's, a, it's a needed relationship for people. Um, so I'm, I'm super, I don't want to, I don't like to use the word blessed, but uh, <laughs> hashtag blessed. I'm hashtag blessed to have Mike and someone like that. It's nice to have the scholars and the books and the podcasts and the music that you listen to, but sitting face to face before COVID, of course, um, <laughs> it's, it's nice to have someone to just to, to talk with and, and to, to process through all this stuff together. And for our friends who might want to get a peek into that relationship, you two wrote a book together, actually you've written several now, but uh, was it The Journey with Two Mystics or A Journey yeah. with Two? Yeah, our first book was A Journey with Two Mystics. Wiffenstock uh, published it, which was really cool because his dad, Mike's dad is a philosopher, Rick Machuga, who has also published with Wiffenstock on the scholarly side. And so, and then Rick wrote the foreword also. So it's nice to have like, we were able to publish with Wiffenstock which is, you know, kind of a household name in theological circles. Right. Um, and then to have his dad, who has also done that in the past, um, it's pretty cool. And then we have the Bonfire Sessions, which is a series of booklets that choirs published. And um, those are like, it, we call it like kind of the Seinfeld book. It's, it's, they're books about nothing. And everything. Um, and yeah, exactly. Like we don't have an outline. We have no agenda. It's literally just writing back and forth as if it's a conversation. And doing some minor edits. So edit, edit, edits, edits. Uh, <laughs> I have to edit the edited right. uh, so that it's readable, but it's essentially as close to a, a transcript of a conversation as humanly possible. 
And you guys did a podcast together also called the Bonfire Sessions, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what it's on hiatus right now because of Mike's health. Right. But people could get a glimpse into that relationship if they want to know what that looks like. Because most of us have never had somebody that you could just tell anything to and know they wouldn't leave. Yeah. And that's the point of them. It's like, it's not about what we talk about. We hope it's entertaining. We hope it's funny. We hope it's enlightening. But first and foremost, especially in this day and age, we hope it models what it means to be in relationship with someone, Mm -hmm. especially like two guys. I think there's this toxic masculinity where you can't say, I love you to someone, especially if you're a guy, you can't have like a, um, a vulnerable relationship like that. We got to be tough. We got to put up our guard. And we're saying, no, actually, this is what we think it means to be vulnerable with one another, to be sharing with one another. We hope that our books are what we would talk about off the record. Hmm. Now, there could be some personal stuff, of course, that is off the record just between us. Sure. But 95% of what we would say in the book is what we would say in real life. And we hope it inspires people to have more vulnerable, honest discussions without an agenda, without having to proselytize, without having to be right. It's just a conversation for the art of conversing. (laughs) Conversating. A while back, our Pathios colleague, Carl Forehand, good friend of mine, um, wrote a piece on why he no longer considers himself to be a Christian. I followed that up with a piece on why I continue to consider myself a Christian. And you recently wrote a piece that was more of a, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. Can you tell us what led you to that post? Um, it's, I just don't think about it. I, I, I think it gets in the way. I, I think it's cool if you do identify with that. And I think it's cool if you don't. And I'm saying for me, it just gets in the way of being human. I love that you consider yourself a Christian. I say, please do not let the fundamentalists claim that term and continue to drag it through the mud. Katie Valentine, co-host of the Heretic Happy Hour, takes that view as well. She's not going to let other people define what that term means, and she's not going to be defined by, by you know, what things aren't. That Christianity out there that we see is not necessarily Christianity. So I love that you do that. For me, it's just distracting. Um, I, I, I love being able to gain insights from all faith traditions and from those who don't have a faith tradition. And I would rather be like Jesus without doing it in his name than to what I think is taking the Lord's name in vain by doing everything, Jesus, 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 and then being a hypocrite. And I think that's the point of Matthew 25. You know, Christians use this parable, the sheep and the goats to say people are going to hell. And my point is, if anyone goes to hell, now I don't believe in eternal torment, but if anyone goes to hell, it's the people who do everything in the name of Jesus, but they're not doing what Jesus would do. The sheep are confused and the goats are confused. They're like, when did we do this for you, Lord? When did we not? Do it? So it's, it's a reverse. It's to get us to think. That's what parables are for to get us to think just do things that i would do visit the widow visit the imprisoned feed the poor feed the hungry and if you do it in my name great but if you don't you're doing what you're doing you're literally doing it to jesus when you do it to you know do the things that he asks us to do for the least of these Hmm. if you're not doing those things but you're sitting in your church and you're just 
Jesus this, Jesus that, and you're not doing what I taught you to do. You're not in. That's the point. Yeah. Now I think everyone's in. I'll I'll put that out there. Disclaimer. Um, but I still like the parable because it gets us to think. Yeah, if absolutely. You, if you think you're in, you might not be based on your own logic. Right. Yeah. The the reasons you think you're in might actually disqualify you if yeah. anyone was going to be disqualified. Exactly. Yeah. And, and I think that, you know, when you're trying to follow the example of Jesus, one of the last things that you need to do, and I've made this mistake several times now, is start an organization and build, you know, a religion around it, right? That absolutely gets in the way because yeah. at some point in, in every organization, self-preservation kicks in and the movement that should be bringing life and living water uh, becomes a nonprofit corporation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So you mentioned uh, Katie Valentine. The Heretic Happy Hour podcast has been a huge success. As I said earlier, uh, one of the original co-hosts, Jamal Javanji, recently left the show, was replaced by two new co-hosts, Doc, Reverend Dr. Katie Valentine and Derek Day. How's that transition been for you? Oh, it's been great. We've been wanting to kick Jamal off for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, we love Jamal. Um, All that clip's coming back. <laughs> Yeah, just pluck that one out and make a little ad. Um, absolutely love Jamal. Wish yeah. him the best. Sometimes, sure. as he as he states in his um, his farewell episode, sometimes things just run their course and it's time to move on. So, yeah. um, it's it's a um, Jamal did not get cut from the team. He uh, we retired his jersey. So, but. We also are super excited to continue on with Jamal's blessing, of course, because we had honestly, when we, when he approached us and was like, Hey, I think my time has come to move on. We had the idea, do we, do we shut the show down? Cause mm. part of it, part of its success was the camaraderie that Keith, Jamal and myself had and being able to laugh at disagreements and have like heated debates. And I know Keith and Jamal disagree a lot. Jamal and I disagree a lot, especially on like health and wellness and science and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we love the hell out of each other. Right. And, and so that was a part of like, Hey, if, if we, if one of us goes, does this even go on? And he was like, yeah, it needs to. And we've been so fortunate to make i think we made the right decision in not replacing jamal with one person because then it kind of seems like you have to fit that mold right so we went with two people um it was obvious to us to bring on a woman's voice and a woman's perspective and to have someone who is a new testament scholar a doctor um katie valentine has been amazing and when we screw up our greek or hebrew she could put us in our place and tell us we're wrong and i love that um, and then Derek Day, who uh, is a black man. So to have that person of color perspective, Jamal, Jamal is not white. Um, there was a funny thing. Someone was didn't like the Heretic Happy Hour because they had, we had three white men at one point. And Jamal <laughs> said, have you ever met a white man named Jamal? This <laughs> is the greatest clapback ever. It was um, good. I heard it. Yeah, yeah. So it was obvious to bring on, uh, you know, a black man. And Derek is wonderful. Uh, Derek's insights are great. Um the only problem I have with Derek is he might cuss more than me. So, <laughs> and that was your thing. I it was, I don't, I feel like I don't, have, I'm, I'm the fourth wheel now. I, I don't have a thing anymore. <laughs> um, no, but it's been great. And so again, hashtag blessed, I guess. <laughs> I really do think the show is better than ever. 
um, the diversity well, that has added with the two new co-hosts mm-hmm. um, just makes it better. I mean, my favorite thing about Triple H was the diversity of opinions, how you guys could take starkly different opinions, but still love each other and respect each other's right to disagree. Oh, yeah. um, and now that you've just got extra voices doing the same thing. Yeah. You know, it's great. Yeah. And, and Katie owns you guys um, on some key issues, which is also oh, she's, pretty cool. She's yeah. She's brilliant. Yeah. She's uh, right. I, I, I'm not intimidated by her anymore because you get used <laughs> to people, but yeah, sometimes I'm like, Oh, I better shit. Should I even say this? It's going to sound so stupid. <laughs> All right, then you launched a solo podcast called Apostates Anonymous. Are you just a glutton for punishment? I mean, you love just it. really love podcasting. I do. I um, well, when when the bonfire sessions went on hiatus, and you know, I've I've lost um, I lost a portion of my regular nine to five job because of COVID, um, and my daughter's still doing distance learning, so I'm here at home. I was just like, why not just yell at a microphone for forty five minutes? Um, but then I was like, let's just bring on some guests. So you came on, I've had some other great guests, Michelle Collins and Adam Erickson, Kyle Butler, all the heretic happy hour crew, uh, Matthew Cortman. Um, so I, I've kind of transitioned a little bit, doing a little more interviews and just, um, chatting with folks. And I, I like it. It's fun. It, um, I, I do probably the least amount of talking on heretic happy hour. So it's different to have to fill the space with my own voice, which can be a little weird, mm-hmm. but I enjoy it. Yes. I, so yes, I am a glutton for punishment, I suppose. It's a great format for you though, because you really, you do it as an informal phone call conversation. Even when you do an interview, it's not like a publicity piece. Yeah. It's not like you're manufacturing something to promote a product. It's, it's um, conversation, just really informal, relaxed, transparent. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, you do a great well, job it's with it. it's a passion project, i.e., something that uh, doesn't make you money and doesn't get <laughs> listeners. You do it for your own, but it's fun. So I, so I like, um, you know, and it's not the conversations you would have on the Heretic Happy Hour. We're talking more theological things. Like that. So I talked to Ralph Palendo, the owner of Choir. We talked about the Office for you know thirty minutes. I just had Mike Morell on. And that's going to be coming out soon. We didn't talk about, I mean, we did talk about his book with Richard Rohr and we did do that, but it was mainly like about the creative process and about content creation. So try to get, um, I'm going to talk to Dylan neighbor Cruz and talk about permaculture and gardening and things like that. So it's kind of like, okay, Jason Elam, you're, you have a podcast and you write on Pathos and you're writing a book, but what else are you into? Let's talk about that. Let's explore that. Um, kind of try to try to take that approach. I, I talk about football um not american football soccer um so i have football fridays on there too that um if if, just my interests again it's all about me i'm a narcissist (laughs) of course yes absolutely (laughs) no it's really great and folks should check that out you keith giles and others have done a great job of taking painful words like heretic and apostate and kind of turn them into a tongue-in-cheek badge of honor um do those words still sting for you when they come from angry church folks who aren't joking around? No, they don't. Um, when I wrote heretic in the preface, I made an analogy to, um, I'm a big Red Sox fan. Mm-hmm. And in 04, when they finally, uh, by the grace of God, 
Um, won a World Series for the first time in 86 years. I think it was 86 years. Um, they called themselves the Idiots. And that's kind of juxtaposed against the Yankees. Uh, the Yankees are buttoned down, clean cut, very uniform, like the U.S. military almost. Mm-hmm. The Boston Red Sox in 04, their shirts were unbuttoned, big old beards, long hair. They had Manny Ramirez. <laughs> they, were, they were kind of a, a ragtag group of, of players. And so people call them the idiots, and they took that on as a badge of honor to kind of diffuse the pejorative nature of the word. Um, I've kind of attempted to do the same with heretic. You can call me a heretic. It's fine. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strip that away, and I'm going to write a book called Heretic. Or we're going to have a podcast called Heretic Happy Hour. And we're going to make fun of that so that it's, it's not a power over me any longer. Mm. At first, it was kind of shocking. You know, I was super excited about a more loving God when I first discovered that God. And I was ready to share it. And then all the names got flung at me. And I was just like, oh, my goodness. I was offended. So now it's just like, okay, well, I'm not going to let myself be offended. In fact, I'm going to turn it back on you and just kind of use it as a tongue-in-cheek sort of thing. So I'm writing up. Right. You even took it a step further with apostate, right? That's worse than a heretic. It is. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> but, but they treat you the same. Right. Um, yeah. Because they treated you like you're beyond hope from the beginning. Right. And, and I'm going to talk to um, Hemet Mata or Meta, uh, the friendly oh, atheist wow. on, on Apostates Anonymous and on Heretic Happy Hour. And what I want to talk to him about is for a lot of Christians, a lot of people of faith, like, the difference between him as an atheist and me is there's no difference. We're going to both burn. So it's not when, when you, when you have these debates between Hitchens and William Lane Craig on theism versus atheism, does God exist? That is a meaningless conversation because they will burn your ass whether you believe in God or not. The point that you have to be, you have to be in their camp of what God is like, not whether God exists or not. They don't care if yeah. you think God exists. You have to believe in the right type of God with the right attributes. Because the minute you say God is more loving, the minute you say God is inclusive of LGBTQ, the minute you say God is more merciful, you are right in that. You're, you're worse than an atheist, maybe. A her- I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you're worse as a heretic or an apostate, but I'm just trying to diffuse, strip away all the power in those words. So I've got a follow-up to heretic I just announced called apostate. And it's going to be even more... Uh, responses to evangelical christianity's concerns so i'll do 10 more responses to their concerns about the things i say what was your reaction what kind of reaction did you get to heretic did people read it who were not predisposed to agreeing with where you are spiritually you know it's been a mixed reaction most of the reviews are super positive um and i've heard from people that They've given it to friends who they thought needed it. And there's been positive responses from that. So as, as inflammatory as the cover is, and <laughs> um, as, as, you know, kind of, I don't know, blasphemous as people might think it is. Um, it's, it's a serious book. So there's seri- there's good nuggets in there. It's, it's not, it's not as crass as I am like on my show. Um, <laughs> There's, you know, there's a little salty language, but it's, it's, um, it's salted just nicely. 
It's not overly <laughs> perfectly spicy. seasoned. Perfectly seasoned. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Um, so apostate will be the same. It'll be the same tone. I will try to put forth um, serious ideas, but in a lighthearted way, but not too lighthearted, not too dismissive. And um, but overall, I, I'm super happy with how the book is done. Um, the reviews have been really good. Um, it's performed well, uh, better than my other books by far. Um, so, um, why not write a follow-up? Um, I was actually inspired to write a follow-up based on a recent Pathios comment I got. Can I read it to you? Yes, please do. It is, um, I got to pull it up. It's on my Facebook. If you don't mind bearing with me. Not at all. It is, um, I read it to my wife and I can barely make it through reading it because it was so funny. Um, especially the last sentence. Why do I post so much on Facebook? There it is. Um, this is a, a comment I got and I will definitely use this on the back cover. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for your listeners that aren't aware, I, I didn't get endorsements for Heretic. I got trolls and... Um, on the top, it said a perfect cocktail of disgusting lies. Wow. Yeah. And someone called me a professor of word vomit, which is Man. good. So this one, though, takes the cake. So the skinny, effeminate nerd doesn't like Christians. <laughs> I like you, Jason. Uh, <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> then run a far away, nerd. I don't know how nerd is a, is a slight, but whatever. Nerds run companies, right? Yes. Um, we will miss you like a kidney stone. <laughs> I've never had one, but I've heard they're terrible. They are. Uh, if you're a Christian, Satan is a Christian. The logic Ooh. there is airtight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is my favorite, though. This is what I'll ha- I might have a hard time. I've read it so many times that I think I can get through it. The, <laughs> no, I'm going to lose it. The only thing you ever worship <laughs> is your own wide, dirty, diseased asshole. End quote. Wow. Man. For the win. Uh, yeah, that, I mean, top marks to the creativity and the thought that went into that quote. Um, but yeah. That is so dust jacket material right there. Oh my God. Yeah, that's going top, that's going top of the, um, top of the book, the front cover. And Ralph Palenda will do a great job on the cover and will be ecstatic to be able to use that quote in the um, promotional material. <laughs> Do you get a lot of fan mail? Um, well, no, I hadn't. See, I took a, a year and a half hiatus on Pathios. And I forgot that for some reason, a lot of trolls like to hang out under the bridge that is known as Pathios. And I love path, writing for Pathios. I, th- I think it's fun. Um, but they weren't coming around on my page any longer. And now... Recently, I've been back for about a month, and lo and behold, I am gathering wonderful marketing material um, <laughs> from them. I forgot how 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 brutal the internet can be. I feel like over five years of being on Facebook and social media, it's kind of willed. I, I, my page has people know to stay away. I've gotten rid of the trolls fairly over time, and and they don't come on very often. But um, you know. All of my trolls on Pathios are speaking Russian, so I'm okay. Oh, you got the Russian bots? Yes. No, uh, mine are, hundreds mine are speak- hundreds of Russian bot comments. Oh, really? Mine are speaking yeah. Pulitzer Prize winning English. 
Oh, friends, we will link to both of Matthew's podcasts, his author page on Amazon, his, his Pathios column, his social media in the show notes for this episode. Uh, we're going to link to all the work that we've talked about during this conversation. If you're not familiar with Matthew and his work, I really encourage you to check out the resources. Please, please, please. I don't say this very often. Will you check out Matthew's Patreon page? He offers great resources for those who support him. The uh, progressive Christianity, however you want to call it, the heretic movement, whatever you want to call it, is not set up properly to compensate the folks who are leading the way. And I am so grateful for Matthew and his work and uh, want to see it continue. And so it's going to take all of us pitching in to help. And so please visit his Patreon page if you can and contribute. He really is, as I said earlier, a brilliant writer and theologian who's going to help you in your spiritual evolution. Matthew, thanks so much for spending some time with me today. Yeah, thank you. And and I can't, I, I wouldn't be able to afford my G7 without uh, Patreon. So <laughs> I got to stick with the G6. So, you know, help. Oh, me. man. It's rough. <laughs> thanks for having me, man. I thanks, appreciate brother. it. Yeah. Appreciate you. Peace.